we're very, I'm very pleased this evening to uh, bring our a presidency scholar of, um, of, of great note on presidential leadership and a very good friend of, uh, of many years, George Edwards, who teaches at Texas A&M and who has written several books on presidential leadership. And he's also written on the Electoral College. And he writes as well about the state of the literature of the presidency. And so I thought that tonight one of the things that we could do is discuss the notion of presidential leadership and of research, how one develops a research project, how George got interested in presidential leadership, and, and how he looks at the existing literature and the, the views that we have coming into, um, uh, into the study of leadership about persuasion and the challenges that he has had to it and how you prove your case and just generally what it's like to be a, to be a scholar. And um, you, you write in many different areas. Um, I have my, my niches. I'm just much more focused on, uh, on White House and, and on transitions. And you paint with a very broad brush. Um, how did you get interested in the presidency? Well, you know, like many people, I read Dick Neustadt's Presidential Power when I was an undergraduate. And I guess I think I think I thought I was going to be a lawyer, having no idea what a lawyer did. And then uh, I, uh, I got really interested in scholarship. It never occurred to me to be a, a scholar or a professor. And I was so fascinated by, by that book that I decided uh -huh. to, to channel my energies into, into becoming a scholar. And at the time, when I went to graduate school, which was 1969, there, was, uh, there wasn't even a, a graduate course on the presidency uh, mm -hmm. at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, uh -huh. where I went to graduate school. And so uh, I never, I've never had a course, a graduate course on the presidency, as a matter of fact, uh, because it was such an underdeveloped area. Uh -huh. and, and it was because it was hard to study. Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to get access to information. It's hard to think of questions that you could systematically, rigorously evaluate mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and try to answer. There are lots of puzzles, but answering them is, is difficult, as, as you know. Yeah. So at any rate, that, that sustained me for the past 35 years since I've got out of graduate school. <laughs> what, uh, what course was it in that you read it? It was, it was an undergraduate course in the presidency. See, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. And that was great. Uh-huh. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, did, um, when was it that you met Newstat? Well, I didn't meet Dick until years later, and frankly, I was so nervous when I first met him that I would basically say hello or something. He was nice to me, but I was, I didn't have, uh -huh. you know, lengthy conversations. Towards, in later years, I became closer to him, and we had wonderful conversations, and mm -hmm. he was always very generous and kind and, um, and very thoughtful. And uh -huh. he, would, he would react to some of the things that I'd written, and, and uh, I'm very grateful for that, and I cherish those moments. Mm -hmm. Um, what was it that attracted you to that book? Well, you know, I was trying to explain a great mystery of how you make things happen. And it's still a great mystery to, to many people. It's, it's easy to make assertions about how things happen. There are, there are kind of reductionist notions. There are simple-minded notions, I would say. Well, things happen because, uh, well, at the time, Lyndon Johnson was president when I was an undergraduate. And so, well, Lyndon Johnson had something on everybody, it was said. So he knew how to pull the strings, and that's why he was very successful. See. 
That's mm -hmm. that's why it was said. So, uh, or or if you try to explain something about uh, Johnson or 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 Nixon, it was something you know fundamental about their personality. And so that's just what drove everything. Mm -hmm. And um, Neustadt has a much more nuanced view to begin with. And as you know, for a long time, when people studied the presidency, they studied the rules. They studied, you know, how are things organized and what can you do with a veto and, you know, uh -huh. and, and all that's important. I mean, those, those are important things. But there was no politics in it. And um, we were doing constitutional law, and that's still important. And, and I always have thought it's important, and, and it's important to study. And I always include it in every issue of the journal, Presidential Studies Quarterly. There's always an article in constitutional law about mm -hmm. the presidency, always. There's not been one exception in 10 years. But um, nevertheless, it doesn't capture most of what presidents do. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that happen between the lines. And so Neustadt was, was, was actually trying to explain things. And he said, here's what makes presidents successful or not successful. And, but there was also a very, there's so many levels of presidential power that there's, there's information about decision making, protecting your stakes, understanding your stakes, mm -hmm. uh, teaching the public as best you can, you know, uh -huh. and, 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 and trying to deal with and manage expectations. I mean, there's so many levels in, in presidential power that, that it's, it's endlessly important, endlessly rich. I think I think we could uh -huh. we, we could generate research projects for 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 a hundred years, quite frankly. Yeah, out of, we certainly have generated book. a lot oh, yeah. of them. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. But one of his um, uh, most famous uh, quotes from his book is that presidential power is the power to persuade. And uh, you have now written a book looking at um, yes. uh, powers persuasion. Yes. And <laughs> the current title is the strategic president. Persuasion and opportunity in right. presidential leadership, and can you tell us um, uh, how it deals with right. that notion of persuasion? Well, my my basic conclusion is that presidential power is not the power to persuade. That's the bottom line, and I suspect that's what people will most remember. Just mm -hmm. like that's the one thing they remember of, of Dick's book. You know, if they remember yeah, nothing else. Right. <laughs> and um, I make the argument for a couple of reasons, but I ought to back up and say that on one level, Dick was saying, presidents can't command. I mean, they can't go to Congress and say, do this, and expect it to be done. And there's lots of other things that they cannot command. So on the one hand, he was reacting against what I was just talking about, the formalistic view of the presidency. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> on another level, and, and Dick certainly knew the presidents were going to have a very difficult time persuading anyone to do anything, which is why they had to bargain, et cetera. But there still there was an underlying notion that if presidents were just skilled enough and understood their power stakes enough, they could persuade. And it was a prescriptive book. He was trying to be helpful. He was always concerned about helping governing, mm -hmm. helping improve governing and helping presidents to govern, which is laudable. Uh, and I think in the presidency field, we have never lost that. And I think that's, mm -hmm. I think that's to our credit. But at any rate, there is this underlying view. Now, many people have been much less restrained in the view of what presidents can do. And as you know, there's a whole field out there of teaching about leadership and teaching people how to be great leaders. And the holy grail of leadership now is transformational leaders. Mm -hmm. Now, Jim Burns, James McGregor Burns coined that phrase, but, but other organizations have, have put a lot more into the, right. the, the original notion. And sometimes Jim does as well uh -huh. into the, the original notion. And if you, if you do a Google search, 
on transformational leadership. You'll get, at the very least, it varies by day, hundreds of thousands of hits. The first one will be changingminds.org. So they're going to teach you how to change people's minds. Uh -huh. And there's a notion that you can actually do that. And it's not, a no it's not just a notion that the people giving seminars and leadership have. It's a notion that presidents have and often leading to disasters. And when I started just asking the question, well, can presidents actually persuade? And, and we have to look at various venues. So one is the public, mm -hmm. and it's the one that we actually get to experience. We get to, to see it mm -hmm. up close and personal. And you see that almost always presidents fail. They almost always fail. And I mean, you can go back to FDR to take a best test case. Mm -hmm. who is famous for, ostensibly, for his dealings with the public and for the, the fireside chats and, and the use of radio, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And what we, what we find is, uh, well, that we can take the court packing bill. So he's at the height of his power. He's at the height of his power. It's February of 1937, and he proposes a bill to change the structure of the Supreme Court. And we know the story. And, and he does not. He does not ever get the public on his side, even though he's at the height of his power and had just won his greatest electoral victory in November of yeah. 1936. But, but what's equally interesting, what's equally interesting is that's the beginning of the end for the New Deal. And, and when I went to, to look at New Deal historians, they all agree. That was the beginning of the conservative coalition. That's when the Democratic Party got really seriously fractured uh, and that was a disaster for him now we can we can re you know come up closer in history to Ronald Reagan the great communicator that was his sobriquet and he was very skilled at pre presentation there's absolutely no doubt about it and this is not a criticism of any of these presidents that I'm going to be talking about because they all share the same problem and that is they actually don't persuade and so if you look at Ronald Reagan, which I've done in some detail, as you know, right. and every major policy area that, that he was concerned with over a sustained period of time, the public not only didn't move in his direction, it more typically moved against him mm -hmm. and the other direction. Now, here's a very skilled guy, so I'm not saying he didn't do it well enough. He just couldn't, he couldn't do it. Oh, I should go back to FDR for a moment. Uh, if we look at the greatest issue of FDR's presidency, I think we'd have to say it's World War II. I mean, the Depression was certainly very, very important. But World War II was one of the defining moments in, in world history. Mm -hmm. So FDR has some goals, which are, again, laudable goals. He wants to move America from its isolationism and start building our defenses. And he wants to aid who eventually became our allies, particularly the British. And at every step of the way, he's finding it very, very difficult to do. And he has to wait for events to move the public. He mm -hmm. can't. He can't get out, and he knows he can't. And occasionally when he tries, he has to scurry back. He has to backtrack very rapidly. And indeed, uh, most people don't know this, but even on the day that, we, that he went to Congress to declare war on Japan, which was the day after Pearl Harbor, we did not, he did not use that occasion to declare war on the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And he didn't do that because he didn't think he could win, didn't think he could get it. Uh -huh. And the reason we actually, for, the formal reason we went to war is that Hitler declared war on us uh -huh. a couple days later.
But he didn't think that he could move the public, even at that point, <laughs> to mm -hmm. declare war on the Nazis. But he did. He had problems consistently. And this is just taking a big issue over uh, quite a few years, from 1937, let us say, up, up until the war. Well, anyhow, going, going uh, we've talked about Reagan. Having, having a very difficult time. We can talk about Bill Clinton, the cornerstone of his administration, and, and I know this because he said it, was health care reform. Now, again, a very important policy, and I'm not suggesting the policy was good or bad. We don't have to decide that. The point is that we now know that within the White House there was a, a, a widespread view that Bill Clinton could take his case to the people and he could he could get public support and they would pressure Congress and he would get what he wanted, or at least most of what he wanted. And and he, he took his case to, to the public in an unusual situation in September of uh, 1993. He made a nationally televised address, which was very well received. He did a good job. And he, again, was a very strong communicator. Mm -hmm. And is a very smart guy and a very knowledgeable guy. But then what happened? Well, what happened is that opponents started coming out of the woodwork, right? The Republicans were very opposed, but they offered, they offered their views. There were lots of views. There were lots of alternatives. Mm -hmm. the, the, and a public support for that, as in every other, every other policy that was contentious that he, that he was pushing, uh, started dropping and dropping and dropping, and the, uh, the bill never came to a vote in either House of Congress. Mm -hmm. And this also became, but a you say, well, a loss is a loss. You try some, you win some, you lose some. But the point is this also became the, the best uh, case for the Republicans in the 1994 elections, which was a disaster for the Democrats, mm -hmm. that, that the Democrats were, were too far left. They had lost touch with the wishes of the American public. Mm -hmm. So again, and then for the next six years, the Republicans controlled Congress. So we, it, it's not just, and, and we could use the example, I suppose the best example, a very current example of this, is George W. Bush, not necessarily viewed as a great communicator, but nevertheless, he's just won re-election. He says, I have political capital, and I'm going mm -hmm. to use it. And the biggest policy we have is Social Security, and we need to reform it. And, and he's absolutely right. We need to reform Social Security. So, <clears throat> moreover, though, the White House is trying to intimidate opponents, intimidate in, a, in a, an appropriate political way, I suppose. I, I don't mean this in a, in a nefarious, underhanded way, in saying, we are not winding down the campaign. That's not what we're doing. We're ready. We're re you know, we've got the organization there. We've just won this great victory. We've turned out the votes, and we are not winding it down. We've got money. We've got structure. You know, we've got organization. We've got organized groups and organized interests on our side. We're ready to go. And then, as you know, the Treasury Department, they started out with 60 stops in 60 days. Right. And the Treasury Department actually, on its website, actually allowed you to follow that around the country. Now, it, it, it didn't work, so they added more stops, and they had lots right. more speakers than the president. But this is probably the most concerted effort, the most organized effort, to ever obtain public support for public policy in the history of the republic. It was an extraordinary effort. And we know what happened. It didn't work. Yeah. It didn't work. Once again, they're opponents. That's, that's, that's the rub for presidents. They're, they're opponents. And it failed. Yeah. Now, I don't think it failed because 
there's lot there's lots of reasons one one could say that it failed, but I don't think it's because George W. Bush wasn't clever enough in making his case per se, or that you know when he talked to those uh, town hall meetings that he had that he didn't do a good enough job. I don't think that's it. I mean, so I think there's a more fundamental problem out there that it's very very difficult to obtain public support in the face of opposition, particularly if you want to bring about change, mm -hmm. if you want to do something. And all of these cases, these examples that I'm talking about, are examples of presidents, you know, trying to make major change. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, if he had decoupled um, Social Security being in trouble mm -hmm. and then the personal retirement accounts, if he hadn't put the two of them together, because in a way, the way he was trying to sell them from the start um, appeared as if he was saying, well, this is the solution. This is the problem right, and this right. is the solution. And right from the start, in uh, certainly in the briefing room, questions came up from the very beginning that there's no relationship right. between these two. Right. And it wasn't something they ever dealt yeah. with. Well, I don't, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. It was as if we're going we're gonna to make you more money and that'll be, that'll make the things we have to do yeah. down the line yeah. more acceptable, you know, because yeah. we're going to have to do some cutting. Um, but I actually don't, I don't think so, because what really drove the opposition in this case was the absence of a guarantee. What the AARP really objected to was when, they, they like you to be able to keep your money, and they don't mind you, you know, investing some of the stock market, but there was a risk that added an element of risk and undermined the absolute guarantee, and that's what people right. obje ob objected to more yeah. than anything else. And there's no way to avoid that with the plan that, 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 he, that he had. Yeah. There's no way to avoid that kind of, that kind of opposition. But it's merely, it's merely another example of presidents finding it very, very difficult to move the public. By the way, let me give you one other example, okay? And the, very current, very contemporary, very relevant, and that's the war in Iraq. Now, if you look at, at support for invading Iraq, and go back to when the administration began its efforts, which was in the latter part of August of 2002, when Vice President Cheney went to the Veterans of Foreign Wars and made a, made right. a, a strong speech. And then for several months, there was, uh, there was a concerted effort, as we all know, we all got to observe it, to obtain the public support for invading Iraq, for going to war mm -hmm. with Iraq. Now, if you think about the context of this, we just had a national trauma, so we were kind of sensitive about anything labeled terrorists or potential terrorists. We, ju we just had that. Saddam Hussein had literally a 1% approval rating in America. One wonders who the 1% were, but <laughs> they must have got confused about who he was, I suppose. Iraq was America's least favorite country. And it was interesting that in, um, I think it was February of 2001, before the president had ever said the word Iraq in public, and before the 9-11 attacks, mm -hmm. for some reason Gallup asked the public, you know, should we invade Iraq, you know, to remove Saddam Hussein? And like 52% of the people said yes. And right after 9-11, it just spiked up to, you know, almost huh. unanimity. But then that went down, uh, and particularly when people realized that Iraq, or many people, not everybody, realized that Iraq was not involved in the 9-11 attacks. Mm -hmm. At any rate, what is fascinating is that you've got, and you've got this concerted effort in part of the White House. There's really no organized opposition. There's mm -hmm. no organized opposition. Right. 
uh, to this, and the the uh, commentators on TV, and there are many of them appearing, and we're now learning more about the relationship between the Pentagon and the commentators, etc. But at any rate, the commentators on TV, and we've actually had people who counted them, were overwhelmingly like between 85, 95 percent pro-war. Uh huh. And so you've got a perfect context for obtaining public support. And yet what's fascinating is the public moves very little at all. The only time it really moved response to anything was when Colin Powell spoke at the UN. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the president got a, it went up to about 62%. Mm -hmm. And then it started drifting down again. And then when you, go to, when you go to war, just the days before you go to war, then the, the country rallies. But it's a fascinating, even in this context, he had a majority. He had a majority, don't get me wrong. He had a majority, but he always had a majority. From the day he took office, if you will, to, to invade Iraq. And the, my point is, despite all of the advantages, despite the very unusual context for take, making a case to the American public, he still couldn't really move the public. Mm -hmm. Now, and again, I'm not saying that if he just spoken differently or better, I'm not criticizing the president. It's about the presidency. It's a fact of life with the American people. They're hard to move. Uh -huh. They're hard to move, and they rarely do. Um, when did um, when did the public start start to move away from the president? What kinds of things um, led them uh, led that majority on into, the war? Yeah, into a majority of another sort. Yeah. against it. Well, what happened is what typically moves public opinion is events, mm -hmm. and what people see happening in the world, and of course they have to perceive them, and sometimes it takes uh, a days or months. To, to sort out what, what really went on. But what happened was the uh, disaster after the war, after our success, after mission accomplished, and then looting and killing, chaos, mm -hmm. et cetera. And that's, and, and of course that makes great pictures on, on the evening news. But, but the story was pretty clear. Things were not going well, and they were not going at all like they were supposed to go or that we've been told. And so that sunk in, and public support started drifting away. Mm -hmm. And to a, a low point now where most people, a majority of people, think it was a mistake to go in in the first place, and very few people think that we've managed it well. Uh -huh. I'm saying it, it, you're down to the core partisans mm -hmm. now. They're the only ones who, who think it's been well managed. But events. You know, mm -hmm. which is exactly what it should be. I mean, this is actually a tribute, if you think about it, to the American people, that they're not easily manipulated, not easily, excuse me, manipulated mm -hmm. by, by someone who gets up, gives a few speeches, or, you know, or is, is a sustained public relations effort from even as something as a, the great bully pulpit of the White House. It's, it's not easy a, unless you've got a great case and, a, and there's a lot of evidence to support you. Do you think that... Um as if you look from the time of Roosevelt to today, the um, the various ways that you can that um, the opposition can um, um, can coalesce and make its case is it's much greater. There's a much greater opposition. I think in the Eisenhower administration, if you looked at uh, the interest groups that would be um, uh, rallying against them on most yeah. issues, it'd be labor and. And uh, and then he'd have business on his side. Right. I mean, you just look as as the objects of legislation increase, the types of interests, you know, into consumer protection, environment, oh, and, and so many other things. Then you have this enormous number of interest groups 
that have uh, come to Washington. Right. Does it mean that uh, their presence and their opposition, does that, do uh, they mean that um, it is, uh, is going to be almost impossible for a president to uh, move the public? It makes it very difficult, and another thing that makes it very, very, because there's organized opposition, yeah. there's, more, there's more organized, effective opposition right. out there. So that's one thing. Another thing is the nature of the way people uh, obtain information. People read uh, newspapers much less. They watch mm -hmm. the network news much less. Young people, particularly, much less. Uh, and so, and so, uh, what they do, they turn to more niche media, more and more niche media, which is often a reinforcing media. Uh, and uh, uh, some people watch CNN, some people watch Fox News, and there's an argument that Fox News is particularly reinforcing and a Republican. Uh -huh. News, right. news outlet, um, but um, it's harder. It's it's harder to get the uh, the in the old day. You know the Walter Cronkite mm -hmm. news, where everyone is responding to the same thing and right. the same view. Yeah. So na now news comes with with another message, you know, and it, it is is less less straightforward. And there are, there are many 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 venues, and in theory that provides much more opportunity for people to obtain information on their own terms. But it also means that there's more opportunities for the news to come slanted. Mm -hmm. And you've got to overcome that as well. And it's difficult. But also, if people are paying less attention, uh, one of the things that the, the, the computers were supposed to do for us, and we all love computers, I certainly do when I, I live on the computer, was mean that everyone would be informed now because, because there would be so many opportunities. Uh -huh. But I'm not sure that that's true at all. And... And if people are not paying attention to to the, the media, particularly the big media that, that covers um, national news, mm -hmm. then the president has few opportunities to actually reach folks. And we know that, you know, with his message. Uh -huh. you, they got to know what your message is before they can respond mm -hmm. what you want. And we, we know that uh, one of the things that cable TV has done is, is um, hurt the president's ratings on the rare occasions when he goes on and makes a nationally televised address. Ratings are down. And when you and I were growing up, um, there were three options, and they were all carrying the same thing, right? Uh -huh. So if you wanted to watch TV in the evening, right. you watched the president speak. Yeah, and mostly it was two, because ABC was um, kind of a, a, right. a, poor, uh, right. Right. a poor cousin. Right, right. To so, NBC so there, there were no alternatives. There were yes. no real alternatives. Yeah. And now, uh, of course, you've got a hundred alternatives. So if you don't really want to watch the president, you can watch many other things. I mean, dozens of movies or sporting events or, mm -hmm. or whatever. And many people choose those alternatives. So the president's ratings go down. That's just merely an indicator. That's on, you know, on, on matters of, you know, high politics, if you will, and right. and, and great state events, usually. But, but it's indicative of the broader problem that the, pr the president has and just reaching the public, in addition to more opponents <laughs> right. and more organ and more effective opponents. Right. It's just getting people's attention yeah. and getting through to people is difficult. Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things we've talked about is the vast amount of information that exists, right. but the paucity of understanding is how do you bring understanding to that information? Well, you know, it's it's very mm. difficult. It goes, but Dick Newstadt talked about the need to teach the public, 
but it's it's very hard. It strikes me it's very hard now for the candidates, Democrat or Republican, the, the candidates, to be teaching people about about the limits of what government can do, can can effectively do during an economic slowdown or mm -hmm. downturn. <laughs> However you want to characterize what we're in at this at, at right. this moment, to to try to teach them about the budget, uh -huh. try to teach them about the Social Security problem that we really face, much less the Medicare problem, the, the mm -hmm. funding of Medicare problem that we really face. It's, it's, it's very difficult uh -huh. uh, to, to, to teach people to, to lower their expectations. They, want, they, they want action. They want, they want right. to solve these problems. You know? Because that's not what the public wants to hear. Exactly. And so at exactly. this point, what they're talking about is all the different ways in which they can spend right. the money. Right. And, right. and, and right. at the same time, cut taxes. Right, right. And, 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 and find waste, fraud, and abuse. And, right. you know, we've been through that an awful lot of time. And usually yeah. that's very, very vague, and it never happens. Yeah. It never even gets identified, much, much less Congress being responsive uh -huh. to those suggestions. Uh, so, yeah, it's very, it's very, very difficult. It's, it's always been difficult. Now, one could argue that FDR was particularly good at that. It, at least he gave people hope. Mm -hmm. And you know that's that's one of the the lasting legacies of of the New Deal. Uh, a lot of new policies were put in place then as well, and those mm -hmm. those are important. But gave people hope to get through mm -hmm. the, the the very hard times. And one thing that one could say about Ronald Reagan is that that's one thing he also did. Times were not nearly as hard in the mm -hmm. 1980s as they were in the 1930s, Jeez, uh, right. uh, of course. But that you know it's morning again in America. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that's very difficult to calculate, but it, it could be important. I'm not, uh, so I don't mean to diminish the sig significance of that. But it's something quite different than saying, well, I want to reorganize the education system or, right. or, or the health care system yeah. or, or the retirement system. Uh -huh. that's some, it's something quite different. Yeah, that's true. And, and persuading um, people that a tax cut is a good thing. It's not... Uh, well, it's not it's the not, hardest case to make. Right. <laughs> not, Usually, if you say, I'm going to give you money and it's uh -huh. okay, people are willing to say, okay, we, you know, we'll take it. They don't, they don't, they don't draw back in horror. You know? What about uh, Roosevelt and uh, his um, fireside chat uh, mm -hmm. where he talked about um, the banks and during the bank closure mm -hmm. and asked mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. that when the banks opened up, not, right. not to have a run right. on the bank. And this was about a week into his first term, and his yeah. very highest priority was get the banks back open. Because you need to have the banks, you need money circulating, or the economy just gets worse. So it was, it was really quite important for him to do this. Now, here's, here's, here's my argument about that. First of all, he did a very good job. But what he was doing was reassuring people for the things he, he was moving people in the direction they wanted to go. He was giving reassurance, and that's what he did, and he did it mm -hmm. brilliantly. What he did is say, look, we've evaluated these banks, and the only banks that are going to be open come Monday are the banks that we have checked out, and they're solid. They're okay. So what he wanted people to do was put the money back in the bank that yeah. they already had it in. So they, their normal right. inclination was to have it in the bank, and then he took it out, and he said, now, put it back. Put it uh -huh. back, and I want to assure you that we have checked these out. Now, this was very successful, and it was very important. Yeah. But it's not, and uh, it's not like uh, persuading people who never had their money in the bank. Mm -hmm. Now, 
you know, you've never put your money in the bank, but now you have money, put it in the bank. He was reinforcing people's inclinations. Mm -hmm. and, and that's important, but it's a little bit different. He was moving people in the direction they wanted to go. Yes. And, 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 and that's important. And, and if I had been speaking, I may have, you know, messed it all up. And, you know, it wouldn't have given the reassurance uh -huh. was necessary. So, I, again, I don't want to diminish what they did, what they did. But I think that the nature of leadership is different than persuasion. I mean, I think that, that presidential power is not the power to persuade. Presidential power is the power to understand the opportunities that are mm -hmm. out there and to exploit them. And mm -hmm. I mean that in, the, in a good sense to exploit them, to understand what can we get people to do, what, 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 and what, what do people support, and, and, and dealing with Congress. It's the same, when you've got an opportunity, I mean, take FDR in the 100 days, perhaps the most famous period of legislative productivity in all of American history. And it's very interesting. FDR himself had three bills that he was going to propose, and then he was going to send Congress home. And that's, that was common back then. Congress wasn't in session. Right. He's going to send Congress home for months till he figured out what to do about the, the uh, Depression. So he had to open the banks. He wanted to repeal Prohibition, which wasn't necessarily a recession, uh -huh. uh, yeah. <laughs> <or> Depression-related <laughs> matter, although it may have taken it, made it easier to deal with the Depression. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they was going to cut the budget. Uh -huh. And, and uh, on the, uh, the bank bill, they, they, they actually didn't even see the bill in one of the houses. As you know, they, they had to yeah. fold a piece of newspaper because that's, they just didn't have copies. But they were so desperate, they, they just, you know, vote, vote. And they, they, they voted in no time at all. One day, it was, it was done, a matter of hours. He had a lot of problems with, with the economies bill. In fact, a lot of Democrats and a lot of Democratic leaders deserted him, voted against him. And, but the Republicans came on board because they were fiscally minded. You know? yeah. and so... They were for that repealing prohibition. Well, that was a very popular policy, so that mm -hmm. was. But what he found was, as James Gregor Burns puts it, you know, a wave of adulation was sweeping the country for Roosevelt. He hadn't gone for it. He hadn't tried to, hadn't tried to develop that. But it was there, and so instead of sending Congress home, he kept them in session, and he called. In effect, he called New York for the brain trust, mm -hmm. um, oversimplifying just a little bit. And he said, get down here. <laughs> you know, and they hastily wrote legislation. Yeah. And that's where the 100 days came from. Mm -hmm. So he saw an opportunity that he could push things through. He said, Congress will, will support almost anything if it looks like you know, uh -huh. it's going to deal with this terrible, terrible crisis that we, that we have. And that's where it came from. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you go to Lyndon Johnson's great success, the next period of great legislative productivity, the Great Society Congress, the renowned Great Society Congress in 1965 mm -hmm. and 1966, you find something very interesting because Johnson knew Congress back and forth. He was absolute master. He was brilliant at it. And what he knew is, he said, look, I've got a narrow window of opportunity and I need to exploit this. And he was brilliant at exploiting it. Mm -hmm. And when we go and we ask, uh, like we're, you're doing, you've done many, many oral histories and interviews. The oral histories done at the time uh, or right after Johnson's administration, with, with the the uh, congressional leaders, who were pro Johnson, mm -hmm. and they ask him, well, what was his special talents? Because there was all all this the legends that had been built up about Johnson, and his persuasiveness, and they kept saying he was relentless. He just kept sending legislation down, sending legislation down, sending it. He was relentless, 
and the and the oral history interviewer kept asking these people like John McCormick and Carl Albert, you know, mm -hmm. legends themselves. And they just they, they they would never respond the way that the oral historian expected them to respond. Say, well, he was so persuasive, he'd get you, you know, put his arm around you or stick his mm -hmm. finger in your chest or things like. It was not that wasn't that wasn't what he did. And if you look at the the two volumes that Mike uh, Beschloss has done mm -hmm. about the the Johnson tapes, there's almost nothing in there about Johnson even trying to persuade members of Congress. What he saw was and what he knew was I've got an opportunity. I've got a liberal majority. <laughs> I'm never going to have it again. It hadn't happened since uh -huh. FDR, right? And so I've got a strike. And he kept Congress in session till two weeks before the midterm elections, which did make the Democrats happy because they knew what was mm -hmm. going to happen. And the Democrats had a disaster. They lost 47 seats yeah. because they had gotten a lot of seats in the 64 election. election right. But Johnson said, I've just won in a landslide, partly because of the, the trauma of my predecessor's assassination, the terrible the death mm -hmm. of President Kennedy, partly because I ran against a very weak opponent, Barry Goldwater, who was characterized as being outside the mainstream as an extremist. So I got this huge vote, I had this mandate, and all these Democrats got elected, uh -huh. who shouldn't have been elected, so to speak. When I say shouldn't have, I yeah. mean they were from seats that are normally held by Republicans. Like Iowa. Yeah, the and, Iowa yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's yeah. lots of, all of a sudden you've got all these Democrats that so i got to exploit this. Mm -hmm. i got to exploit this. Now, 1967, things are tougher. Things are tougher for Johnson. It's not because he lost his persuasive skills or, or his desire for change. It's he lost the same kind of opportunity. Same thing for, for FDR, by the way. In the second term, he wins a huge landslide. There's lots of Democrats, but <clears throat> you know, big majority still in, in Congress. But if you go to James McGregor Burns' book, uh, The Lion and the Fox, and he's a Roosevelt lover, you know, he, mm -hmm. uh, and everyone now is a Roosevelt lover, it seems. But anyway, when he talks about the second term, you know, pre-war, the second, the full term, and, and, and Roosevelt's relations with Congress, the chapter is titled Deadlock on the Potomac. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much what it was. Now, it wasn't that FDR got stupid. It wasn't that FDR had lost his persuasive skills or his, his political talents. They were just as keen as they'd ever been, mm -hmm. right? It was, uh, he, he lost the opportunity because Congress, as I said, starting in the beginning of 1937, Congress was having, had different views. He, he didn't have the same, the same context for driving legislation through. So this very important period in American history came to a, basically a screeching halt as far as New Deal. Again, there's really no dispute about, about this. You just have to, we have to take facts that we know and ask a different question about them. Mm -hmm. You know, what, yeah. what was really going on and, 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 and what was the role of persuasion? So Roosevelt, again, a brilliant politician, a brilliant leader, but the leader was recognizing the opportunities and driving things through. Uh -huh. And, you know, we can go to other countries. We see the same thing uh, with Margaret Thatcher, for example. She was prime minister for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Big changes took place in, in Britain during that period. Some people like them, some people don't. We don't have to, again, decide you know, whether they were good or bad. But the point is, I think that in the public approval polls that they take of the prime minister, just like we do with the president, I think in that 10 years, she, she got it more than 50% once. I think it was after the Falklands. Mm -hmm. Once. Yeah. 
So it isn't that she had great public support. Well, she rammed things through, and then that changed the nature of you know what everyone had to respond to. Uh -huh. you know, she had a majority, and when you have a majority in Parliament, you can do most things that you want to do. And she rammed it through. She was tough. Mm -hmm. You know, she exploited the opportunity. So that's what uh, I think is really the essence of leadership: is recognizing, not overreaching, not underreaching, mm -hmm. and and and. Uh, in less favorable times, I've taken best-case scenarios here to discuss with you. Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, uh, when Ronald Reagan came in in 1981, they had learned Johnson's lessons very well. There's a very famous memo written by three of his top aides about the narrow window of opportunity, but there was even narrower, and mm -hmm. they understood this very, very well. And indeed, by November of the first year, Ronald Reagan had less than 50 percent approval. Mm -hmm. It got, went back up, and then it went down. We, uh -huh. we had a severe recession, if you recall, and he was very unpopular for the next right. couple of years. Yeah. Then it started coming yeah. up again. But yeah, at any rate, the, they were. Uh, Jim Baker writes about this uh, in a number of venues, but they were very explicit about it. We can only focus on a few things. Mm -hmm. It's basically budgetary matters because right. that includes the defense. Our defense policy is spending a lot more money, cutting taxes, and trying to hold hold the fort against increases yeah, in, in domestic budget. spending. And um, we've got to do this quickly. We can't do anything else. We can't talk about anything else. They, right. they, enforced, they enforced on the administration um, not allowing uh, people to go on the Sunday talk shows from the administration and talk about other kinds of issues, and think about social issues, et cetera. We can't right. do that because we'll irritate too many people. And, and will dissipate, you know, our focus, and we can't do that. And so they were they were very good at recognizing the opportunity that they really had, and then exploiting that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And they did it very effectively. They were brilliant at it. And mm -hmm. and, and and from that came much of the legacy, the real legacy of Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. And um, that's great. I mean, that's what that's that's uh -huh. what effective leadership is all about. But it's different. People have a, uh, there's a legend that Ronald Reagan could just, you know, get the public on his side all the time and was very, very popular and, and all that. The average approval rating of Ronald Reagan over his tenure was 52%. Mm -hmm. Now, the average approval rating of Richard Nixon was 47%. So you can see that, yeah. you know, it's better than 47, but it's not like he was a fabulously po popular guy. The last two polls, when it didn't matter, of the eight years, yeah, he was right, very, right. he was very high, but um, uh, the public responded as you might expect. When bad times, he went down. When times were better, he went up. Mm -hmm. And and uh, but there's no no special magic. Uh -huh. In fact, uh, Marlon Fitzwater, who was his longtime press secretary, said that the Reagan would go out on the uh, uh, and meet the public out in the hustings and uh, draw huge throngs and convert no one at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's from his own press secretary uh -huh. who was there observing this. And that's, that's pretty much what happened. And again, this is not a criticism of Ronald Reagan. It's the way presidents are. It's, it's the world that they face. It's very difficult uh -huh. to, one, to persuade. One of the, um, uh, the memories that I have of, um, of him and his frustration with not being able to persuade people was on catastrophic health insurance when they had passed, uh, they had passed it, right. and then the um, uh, um, various groups came, rose up in opposition. Right. They had to unpass and, it the next year. And they year. had to unpass <laughs> it. And his remarks yeah. 
when they when they had to withdraw it was he talked about how frustrated he was that yeah. groups had gotten together and had defined the right. issue and so right. in a way here they'd had a they'd had a success but right. they couldn't hold it exactly yeah exactly you can look at his memoirs and he talks that one of the things that he cared a lot about were the Contras in Central America. Yeah, it was right. near and dear to his heart. It was a major policy area for the for their administration. Of course, later it, it led to other problems, but basically he he says I tried and I tried and I tried to convince the American public that they should care about this issue and that we su should support aid to the Contras. He said I always failed, and indeed he did. We have lots of data. It's readily yeah. available, and I, I provided it. He couldn't get even a plurality of the public, much mm -hmm. less a majority. There was always a plurality or a majority on the other side. And he said, I couldn't even get the Americans to understand where Nicaragua was located in the world, uh -huh. you know, much less that support the Contras. You know, I, just, I just couldn't do it. He, he lamented. And again, it wasn't lack of effort. It wasn't lack of skill. Mm -hmm. It was just that it's very difficult to move to move the, for a leader to move the public it's the public generally responds to the world if you will mm -hmm. that's kind of a vague phrase i know but, but what's happening in life and what's yes, you know events, events right. yeah uh, what are the tools that um, that a president can use to identify opportunities and to exploit them yeah you know that's a, that's that's a really good question and um, <clears throat> i don't have a a, a a ready answer i think it's you know, experience. I think this is something that really requires a lot more research and, and thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, presidents need, first of all, they need to be insightful to understand. Right. Unlike the presidents, I've given you examples where they really, they really believed that they could, they could do this, and they ended up with disasters. Mm -hmm. So they really need to understand their limitations. They need to understand the system broadly. Not just the nitty-gritty of you know in, internal White House, but broadly the system of politics. That's that's really important. They've got to persevere. They've got to have they've got to have energy and commitment and resiliency, and um, those are those are like personal characteristics. But they're not, not necessarily a response to to, to no. That's to your in, question. in a way it is because uh, their personal characteristics are clearly right, but important. But they've, they, they've they've got they've got to be insightful, and they also need to. To uh, have people around them who have those kinds of insights. If I recall correctly, in the Reagan case, the memo was written by Richard Worthlin, a pollster, David Gergen, mm -hmm. I believe, and for some reason the third person, and shame on me, is, is blanked out. Maybe you recall, but it's it's a it's uh, th it was it was a very thoughtful and uh -huh. a, 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 and very useful. Mm -hmm. It was a game plan. It was a strategy yeah. to exploit opportunities to understand right. and then exploit. Yeah. You know, uh, and of course, you can't always plan. You can't always plan on the opportunities coming up. Uh -huh. I mean, just like Roosevelt couldn't. And you know, persuasion is really—I suppose one could say—can you create opportunities? And that's what persuasion would be about. And I think very rarely, but you do have opportunities you can exploit. Mm -hmm. And um, when when the current president George W. Bush became president, even though there was a. Uh, one might call a, a, a national crisis of sort, a political crisis of sort, and a lot of people were saying to him, "Well, it better be, better be pretty moderate, you know, better be pretty moderate." And and the administration said, "We're not going to do that at all. You know, we're not going to do that at all. We're mm -hmm. going right for our. We have priorities, and we're going to do." And they were, I think, they were very effective mm -hmm. strategists at 
at, at moving legislation. As you know, they had a week on this and a week on that, and they were introducing right. policies. Uh, uh, no Child Left Behind, faith-based, uh, yeah. taxes, of course. And, um, military they, spending. Military. And they knew that taxes could not be filibustered the way they were doing it. That, that was one policy. They could get it through. Mm -hmm. And it would be popular, and it would, it would, it would, the Republicans were very enthusiastic about it. Democrats would tolerate it. Some were enthusiastic, some would tolerate it. Even Al Gore had said we should have a big tax cut. wasn't as big as what the, the President Bush proposed, but, but it wasn't like absolutely no, you know, black, white. So there was a good context, and that would, that would give them a big victory. They'd look, you know, they'd show competence early, and, and they had it. Mm -hmm. They had it. But it's also interesting is that we have a few polls from Gallup and asking people, do you support the president's tax cut? And what is fascinating is, and this is a tax cut, yeah, opinion right. didn't change one single percentage point. Uh -huh. Not one single percentage point. Mm -hmm. uh, even it, it, it reflects something of the polarization of the country as well. But So, you know, he's in the mid-50s, if I recall. Mm -hmm. It's about 56%. But, mm -hmm. but you think, a tax cut, we're running a surplus yeah. and we want to give you money back, and right. still he couldn't get 44% of the people. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, it's not a criticism of, of his persuasiveness. It's the presidency. It's a problem the the, the presidents the presidents face. But it, but at any uh -huh. rate, they had they had a a good a good sense of that. They thought about things strategically. Now there were some other problems as the administration went on uh, uh, of of different sorts. But but even though that wasn't the same kind of favorable context with a very narrowly divided Congress that. FDR had, you know, huge majorities, or that LBJ had, or that even Ronald Reagan had with mm -hmm. the big mandate, I mean, uh, uh, the, the appearance of a mandate, a big electoral victory over Jimmy Carter by 10 percentage points, and the Senate had gone Republican for the first time since the 1952 elections, which really was a shock mm -hmm. to the system. So he had a lot of, and the Democrats were reeling, even though they still had a majority in, in, in the House. Uh, so that, that was a reasonably favorable context. Bush's with a, a very short transition. Right. Uh, well, you know, the, the, the election, the way the election was, was determined, the outcome was determined, was very controversial, needless to say. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have majorities, you know, big majorities. Anyway. Yeah. And, I mean, well, they had a 50-50 in, mm -hmm. in the Senate. So, I mean... I mean, it took Dick Cheney to, to, break, to break the tie. So, mm -hmm. so that wasn't favorable, but they still, you know, so they couldn't have a huge agenda. They couldn't, mm -hmm. but, but under the circumstances, they, they, they did well for mm -hmm. their agenda by mm -hmm. acting strategically and understanding, un understanding uh -huh. the opportunities. Uh-huh. Um, uh, an idea of, or the, um, uh, an action by a president that... Um, that takes advantage of opportunity, but he really reshapes it, is um, when Kennedy uh, died, uh, civil rights legislation had been introduced in, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the Congress, and Kennedy had been in favor of his, in his bill, uh, trying to persuade the South to mm -hmm. desegregate the schools mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that you would, uh, schools would get things right. if they went along right. with uh, with the with what the courts had mm -hmm. said, what congressional legislation had said, right. and after his death, um, Johnson wanted a much stronger bill, and that that uh, did much more than just uh, deal with uh, education. It dealt with um, uh, with public accommodations, right, and, right. Uh, and he reshaped the bill 
and made it much, much tougher, broader, and said, this is a memorial to Kennedy. Right, right. And that's certainly taking an opportunity. Right. It's taking an opportunity to get something through, but it was taking an opportunity to reshape it as well. Right. And, and he exploited, he, he certainly exploited the opportunity, yeah. and, and they rammed it. They they rammed it through. They had they had broad support, but they they beat the filibuster in in the Senate because mm -hmm. we're just we're just ramming it through. And I think that that there's a number of there's a number of of techniques regarding public opinion that presidents might use. You're asking about tools that we don't know a lot about systematically. One is framing. We were just talking mm -hmm. about you know fra fra framing an issue. Now presidents always try to frame, and people do, and it often doesn't work because they're opponents trying to frame issues. I mean, pro-life, pro-choice. That's, that's a, right. a simple way is, is a yeah. frame. Each is a, a value that, that, that we, all, we all share. We're all for life. We're all for choice. So, so and which, which one is yeah. the dominant one? And sometimes you can't make headway about that. Um, sometimes if there are policies that are popular, you can make them more salient. Now, you have to be a, uh, uh, we don't know a lot about how much you can increase the salience of a policy, but I'll give you a combination of something that I think that uh, Bill Clinton did brilliantly. You may recall that we were beginning to, to run a surplus, and the Republicans, this, Clinton is still president, and the Republicans wanted a tax cut. And Clinton didn't, didn't. So he said, no, we need to have the surplus so we can pay down the debt. And he said, it's to save Social Security, right? So he was actually bringing another policy mm -hmm. in Social Security and attaching it to an anti-tax, if you will, uh -huh. you know, policy. And, and he knew that Social Security was very popular. Saving Social Security would always be very popular. And he was using that to frame, mm -hmm. and at the same time making saving Social Security more salient and, 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 and linking them together in, in, in the public's mind. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes presidents who are very skilled will just know the moment when events have actually moved the public to a point where they can, in effect, clarify it. And I'll give you two famous examples. One is Roosevelt with Lend-Lease. As I mm -hmm. said earlier in this interview that Roosevelt had a very difficult time moving the public to, to become less neutral, to support, to support right. the Allies, to, to build our defenses. Indeed, we only, kept the, we only kept the draft, even in 1941, by one vote. It passed by one vote in the House. We almost disbanded, in effect, the Army right before Pearl Harbor. Would have been a, uh -huh. a very, but at any, rate, at any rate, in 1940, he could, move, he could see movement in public opinion as the war progressed. And Lend-Lease was an attractive policy. And when, when he thought that the public had moved in that, you know, to a, to a sufficient degree, then he, he established Lend-Lease. He, you know, he clarified opinion, if you will, and, and proposed this as a specific, mm -hmm. specific policy. I think that Abraham Lincoln did the same thing. One of the, the great big picture changes of Lincoln, we, we, we began the Civil War, we, the North, began the Civil War, actually the South began the war, but the North uh, <coughs> proceeded to save the Union. Mm -hmm. And that was the basic goal. And Lincoln even said in his first inaugural address, if it takes keeping slavery to save the Union, then I'm for keeping slavery. Many people forget this, but that's what he said. Mm -hmm. By, by the middle of the war, the whole purpose of the war had changed and had become to abolish slavery. Not only to preserve the Union, but abolish slavery. That's, funda that's a fundamental switch mm -hmm. in, in, in this huge and traumatic national policy. But it wasn't, and Lincoln was our most eloquent president, 
But as it wasn't Lincoln getting out ahead of the public and saying, follow me, like I learned in platoon leader class, you know, mm -hmm. getting, going ahead, follow me. It's when he was waiting, and he was waiting, and pub he knew that there were a lot of people who supported, you know, uh -huh. the abolition of slavery, and it supported that as, 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 as the, the key purpose of the war. But he waited until that opinion developed, and then he waited for, for what he could declare as a Union victory in Antietam. Mm -hmm. And then, then he declared, in effect, the purpose of the war. You know, mm -hmm. but this was this was into the the middle of the war. But it's just merely an example of uh -huh. clarifying opinion and then using that clarification in support of a fundamental policy change. Mm -hmm. So so there is there that that is potential. Now it takes a lot of skill, and I don't know how to write down the rules of how to do that. But but it it really can uh -huh. be quite powerful. Now another a longer term, but very powerful means of. Um, of using public opinion to bring about major policy change. I think we can see in what's happened with the movement of people, the sorting of people into different political parties. Race, we were just talking about the, the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And that was a precipitating event. And Lyndon Johnson knew that, and he, he famously yeah. said, we've lost the it South for a generation. Right. He didn't know the half of it. But at any rate, at any rate, people started moving into the Republican Party. Democrats started moving in the Republican Party, and Republican politicians exploited this not not by being racist. Don't get me wrong; I'm not. But then they said, "Look, we will also like if you you will also think like our policies uh, about those terrible anti-war protesters, and and about, you know we're conservative on social issues, we're more religious, etc. There's a whole range of issues. Then they started talking in economic terms to the blue-collar Southerners that they also like so. What they were doing is not changing their policies. They were just saying, think about us as Republicans. And a lot of people switched parties. Mm -hmm. A lot of people did. Now, they didn't. And then when, when Roe v. Wade came along, it, there was, it was seamless. The Republicans opposed it. And all the traditional, uh, traditional people in the South in particular, but around the country in general, were moving in, becoming Republicans on the basis of these mm -hmm. issues. Now, nobody's opinion changed. They, th their opinion didn't change any of these issues. Basically, mm -hmm. what happened was they just sorted themselves into the right party mm -hmm. for them. And some people sorted in the other direction as well. So it didn't, but, but as a result of this, the Republicans built dominance in Republican and presidential elections. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, Jimmy Carter did win under very unusual circumstances in the wake of Watergate in, in the 1976 yeah. election. And the only, other, the only other Democrat to win is... Bill Clinton over a long period of time, and for you know, I, I, so uh -huh. they, they really had dominance uh, in presidential elections, and they're even competitive now, despite all the advantages that the Democrats have. Yeah. And and this year, so structurally, you'd think the Democrats it would be an easy victory and a big victory, but McCain, at least at the moment, is 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 competitive. Mm -hmm. at, at any rate, it had long-term profound. Profo profound influence on the political system. And what it was doing is channeling opinion. Mm -hmm. It was channeling pre-existing opinion into a political coalition. Uh -huh. So that's, that's very important. And just, I'll, I'll just make one final point about potential tools or, or venues yeah. for using existing opinion. And that is that there are occasionally new issues that people haven't had opinions about. Mm -hmm. There's no organized groups about right. them to speak of. Now one such, and they don't come along very often, SDI, the 
strategic defense initiative, the missile shield, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Ronald Reagan, I mean, sure, I mean, amongst uh, in certain elements of intelligentsia and, and technocrats and whatever certainly have been talking about such things, but it wasn't a, a, a broadly discussed issue until Ronald Reagan in March of 1983 gave a speech about it. Well, there's an opportunity if people haven't thought about it, you know, mm -hmm. um, and they don't have any preconceived notions. They don't have any predispositions right. to overcome. I think another, another such policy, and I say there are not many of these, are stem cell. And, and uh, sure, some people knew about stem cells and stem cell research uh -huh. and potential benefits, but most people hadn't thought a lot about stem cell research or didn't even know there was such a thing. And, and then uh, President Bush, the current President Bush, in August of 1981, made a nationally televised address about his decision about federal, the use of federal funds on, st on stem cell research. Now, these are, in theory, opportunities because opinion should be more fluid. Mm -hmm when it's unformed. Mm -hmm. Now, it's also interesting, I should say, that in the, in the latter case, opinion has been moving against the president. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and people clearly are opposed to his views on, on using yeah. federal funds and funding for stem cell research. Um, but it is, there, I merely use it as an example of fluid opinion, mm -hmm. potentially fluid opinion anyhow, where presidents might have yeah, more opportunity to 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 make an impact on public opinion. Um, today, we uh, their presidents have a lot of instruments uh, for figuring out public opinion mm -hmm. because there's certainly no <laughs> no shortage of polls that they take or that uh, every news right. organization seems right. to take right. in, in right. a variety of ways, separating the publics out in a lot of different ways. How did Lincoln and how did Roosevelt figure out? what the opinion was and when it was ready to um, to move yeah. and what the right time was. Right. Well, you know, uh, Roosevelt invested quite a lot of time and energy in trying to figure out public opinion. So he kept up, of course, a, a, a very extensive correspondence. He sent his wife out. He, uh, But he also actually had polls taken. Mm -hmm. uh, it, this, this is the very early days. They, they spent... Uh, paid a lot of attention to press reports and, and press opinion. Uh, they did everything they could uh, to, to try to, to gauge public opinion. That isn't to say that they gauged it perfectly, or mm -hmm. but, but they made great efforts. Um, Lincoln, in uh, lesser ways, there were no polls, but did the same thing. There's a, he, he also mm -hmm. made extensive efforts, uh, you know, active, proactive efforts to try to figure out what the public was thinking. Now, that's even harder. You have to talk to a lot of people from around the country keep up a correspondence, pay attention to, to uh -huh. what the press is saying, et cetera. So you can't ignore the press. You've got to pay a lot of attention to what it was saying. Right. It was and to the party. Oh, the party absolutely. Would seem to be and you'd use, you'd an use the party. You, yeah, yeah. Spread out throughout, throughout the country. So they made, they made extensive efforts. I, I discuss these a little bit in, in, in this current book because mm -hmm. uh, they really cared and they thought it was really important. And they didn't want to get too far ahead uh, of, of the public. Uh, mm -hmm. and, indeed, um, s some historians say that what Roosevelt actually was content to follow public opinion, mm -hmm. uh, or or to proceed with prudent caution. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and I think I think that that's what that's what they did, and and uh, because they were smart, they were really really smart. They they knew how to get the most out of the the system, in in a good way. And I think that's really what leadership was all about. If Lincoln 
on day four of the Civil War had said, you know, we've got to abolish slavery, uh, that would have undermined the effort. Uh -huh. uh, the country wasn't ready for that. Uh, I don't know if he was ready for it himself at that point, mm -hmm. and, and different people will have different opinions, but, but the country certainly wasn't ready for that. It would have mm -hmm. been a mistake. So he let the country, you know, the country that had made a big investment by the time he was talking about abolishing slavery, a big investment in the war. We suffered terrible casualties on both sides. And, but also opinion had thought about what, it, what is it? What is it that this war is really all about? Mm -hmm. What is the basis of this war? What is the moral basis of this war? And, and so there had been some change. But, you know, it took a war to do that. It took a terrible, bloody, awful war mm -hmm. to bring about that change in, in, in uh -huh. opinion. Plus, there were lots and lots of people, many ministers, et cetera, writers, who, who, were, who were trying to influence public opinion about the moral cause of the war and, and that slavery should be abolished. So he could benefit mm -hmm. from, 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 uh -huh. all, from all that and did. Let's uh, go to some questions. Towson, do you have okay. some questions? I see yep. a hand there in the front. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. Yep. Uh, you were talking about Lincoln earlier, so I was wondering, uh, when do you think it's okay for a president to suspend habeas corpus? <laughs> I think that... Uh, <laughs> uh, this is not necessarily my, my special expertise, but uh, I'd, I'd, I'd be reluctant to suggest uh, at anything uh, short of a crisis, that's for sure. Um, uh, Lincoln, Lincoln thought that he, had a, that he had a crisis, and in some ways, in the mm -hmm. big picture, he did have a crisis. Um, that's the best answer. I, the best, it's, it certainly should not be something we would take lightly. Some questions? Some other questions? Yep. I see a hand in the corner right. coming out of the screen. Here. Also in the front row. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the front row. Okay. Um, which of the, of the three current, um, well, I guess, potential, uh, uh, potential presidents for the, um, for the upcoming election, whichever one actually ends up winning, uh, do you think would best be able to understand that the, uh, uh, that the role of a president is to seek opportunity and to exploit it and not mm -hmm. to just change public opinion? I, uh, I tell you, I think that both McCain and Hillary Clinton have some 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 understanding of that. I don't know about Barack Obama's understanding of that. I, I don't want to be taking sides here, but I think it's a very relevant question because one of the claims of Barack Obama, independent of what you think about him as a person, independent of particular policy stances, is that but there's a notion that he can take his case to the public and people will come together, which we always like. We we always like mm -hmm. that in principle will come together and that he can drive change that way. And he can drive it through his, through his presence and his, his presentation, etc. I'm very skeptical about that. Not skeptical about him personally or his stances. I'm not making any statement about that. But I don't, but I don't think there's any reason to think that that will actually happen, that he, that he will be able to do that. Um, both McCain and Clinton have been through a lot in the nitty-gritty of the legislative process. 
and I think have a better understanding, certainly than Hillary Clinton originally did, with health care mm -hmm. reform, uh, of, of how to make things happen. And I think uh, uh, that this, that they are grounded. Now, I'm not saying that Barack Obama can't obtain that or doesn't also have that. I'm just less certain about it. But I, I do think that the implications of what we've been discussing today are, are pretty substantial for what many people think, hope, or expect from the new president, any new president, that, mm -hmm. they, that they will be able to, to uh, persuade people. Mm -hmm. And in general, that's not going to happen. Do you think that uh, in the campaign, the campaign is very important as the lead-in to governing? So what they're able to accomplish and what they discern in, uh, as they begin to govern, they really need to know when they campaign. Absolutely. Because one of the reasons that Bush had a good transition was he had a sense of, of, what, of how many issues to deal with, right. what kinds of issues, right. and what sorts of priority. And they became his campaign agenda. Precisely. Once he got into office, those, that was right. his governing agenda. Right. And we, it, it seems in this campaign that, that we really haven't seen that. Obama has simply talked about change, and we have no idea yeah. what his real priorities are. Right. And Hillary Clinton's talked about a lot of different fixes. Right. And so it's kind of a pri uh, right. priorities of fixes. Right. And uh, McCain right. Um, has some, but it's not clear yet what, yeah. how they're going to stack up. Whereas in Bush's case, uh, by this point, we really knew in his, um, in his right. election cycle. Right. He had, he particularly born. with the No Child Left Behind yeah. and the, the tax cut, and the general, the, which isn't a really complex policy matter, the faith-based initiative. Right. Um, mm -hmm. He had been talking about that. They were ready to, they were ready to roll. Uh, Ronald Reagan was ready to roll with, with the tax cut, and they knew things they didn't want to do, which is part of the reason they wanted to govern, was to not do things. But uh, in defense policy, I think it was less clear, except that they wanted to spend a lot of money. Mm -hmm. They wanted to really build up defense as rapidly as rapidly as possible. So in principle, it's straightforward. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. complex to actually implement that, but in principle, it's, it's straightforward to, to seek legislation uh, to do that. Um, but, but yes, we have, we have not, to this point in the campaign, we've been talking about inspiration or mm -hmm. I feel your pain, or, or, you know, I can sympathize with you, or something like that, uh, rather than the policies, some of which are to come, mm -hmm. are yet to come. And we, we've heard a lot about the, uh, the specific differences uh, in the, uh, the, health, the, the health insurance plans for uh, mm -hmm. uh, Obama and Clinton, and, you know, there is a point of disagreement there. But um, there's, there's lots of other policies and big policies, and we haven't really heard a lot about it. And then mm -hmm. a lot of it is a quick fix mm -hmm. for what's ailing you today, mm -hmm. which may not be ailing us, hopefully, next March, for yeah. example. Um, some other questions? I yep. see a hand way in the back. <laughs> you described the uh, institution of the presidency as what makes it difficult to uh, sort of pass legislation or even uh, to sway public opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, how does this stack up with the image of the president as this uh, mover of legislation who can really get anything done? Well, it doesn't, it's, it's not very consistent with such an image 
but such an image is essentially wrong. Uh, uh, presidents have a, generally have a very difficult time, particularly bringing about major change. We can think of Bill Clinton, uh, uh, partly because for six years of his eight years he had he was he faced a Republican-dominated Congress, but there was n no non-incremental policy change at his uh, taken at his behest. There was welfare reform, and and but I think that's really a Republican-generated policy. He certainly played an important role. I don't mean to diminish that. But eight years, you know, no big change. Now, little changes add up, so, again, I don't want to diminish. <laughs> but, but the fact is that there's a really smart politician, uh, and that's, that's what happened, uh, which is a lot of what didn't happen. Uh, right. And certainly we've seen the difficulty that President George W. Bush has had in his second term trying to bring about big change with Social Security reform and immigration reform, his own party abandoned him. Um, so we should not assume that presidents um, can move things. They typically have a very difficult time, and under extraordinary circumstances, which, what, which tends to be what we remember, because they're memorable, uh, they get a lot done, like Lyndon Johnson in 1965 and 1966. They, get a, mm -hmm. they can do a lot, or Ronald Reagan in 1981. Um, but if you recall, and you don't recall because you're all too young, but, uh, but I recall that the way that the press typically described Ronald Reagan's budgets in later years was DOA, which was dead on arrival. So, so we have to have, I think, reasonable expectations of what presidents can do. And if we have reasonable expectations of what presidents can do, then perhaps president or presidential candidates will talk to us in reasonable terms, as opposed to promising, promising the world when we know that's not going to happen. They won't be able to deliver. Mm -hmm. Then we can evaluate their promises, I think, more effectively. One of the things that, um, uh, that I think of in terms of Hillary Clinton and the notion of opportunity, that, uh, that she is, is, uh, certainly has an appreciation for that because I think that's why she's still in the race, is that she's hoping that there's some opportunity right. <laughs> where, where, no, getting Barack Obama, where Barack Obama <laughs> fails for one reason yeah, or another, yeah, that there's going to yeah. be um, six Reverend Wrights or, right. you know, who knows yeah. what. Well, uh, I think it's going to take that. Come <laughs> yeah, that it that, looks like it's going to take that, yeah. but that's right. That's yeah. right. Um, some others? Anybody yeah. Some presidents have been criticized, particularly the Bush administration, for being closed with their communications. How do you think that this has any effect on their approval rating? Well, you know, it's, it's, it, that, that's a good question. And, of course, Professor Kumar is, a, is a, the expert on, on uh, communications, so I'm reluctant to, to say much. But I, I think that although presidents and, and, and their aides try to present them in uh, the most favorable light, of course, uh, and and thus cut down on bad news uh, or inconsistent mm -hmm. news or, or, or whatever. I don't think that in, in the in, in the end it, it it drives approval ratings because if you think about where presidents are in approval, and you match that up against major aspects of our society like the economy or like the war in Iraq, that's clearly what's driving it. Not, not, not a communication strategy. That would, mm -hmm. that would, 
that at the best is at is at, is at the margins. Now, it's I, I don't mean to say that you ever want your, your president to be out there drooling, you know, or <laughs> looking bad, or or you know, or 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 releasing stories that reflect you know badly on him per se. And I certainly wouldn't want to encourage that. I'm merely saying that that when we when we put those sorts of things in the context of the big factors that drive approval, well, they're not nearly as important. Mm -hmm. Presidents may convince themselves that uh, what, what they have are communications problems, and right. that they want right. to tinker around. And there's there's certainly a they, lot of that. They, they often do. In fact, yeah. uh, talking about Bill Clinton and health care reform and. At the end, he said, you know, the basic problem was I didn't communicate effectively. Yeah. You know, I just yeah. didn't do a good enough job communicating. Yeah. It's, like, it's like this, is non, this proposition that you can persuade was non-falsifiable, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not that it was a bad strategy. He j in his view, he just didn't implement yeah. it well. Right. But the fact is that he'd also been through that same year, if you think about this, that same year he started out with there was going to be a stimulus program. Right. Well, we didn't get much of that passed. Yeah. And then there was a big fight over the budget, which is one of his claims to fame. It was a big fight, and he did win, but he didn't get any Republican votes at all. <laughs> None. Yeah. Now what? Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and the public wasn't, wasn't that thrilled about the economic plan. I mean, opinion went, you know, went against him. Then he had NAFTA. This also shows you how difficult it is to sustain support when you've got all these issues at, at, at once. And NAFTA was a was a big battle, and uh, he didn't really he really wasn't winning the battle of public opinion on NAFTA, either. Uh, and you think that you might learn, but you recall that Bill Clinton came to office and saying, closing off part of the the press area uh, mm -hmm. to the to the press and saying I can stiff you guys because I can just go on satellite to Los Angeles mm -hmm. and talk directly to the people. And the implication is I talk to the people. And, you know, they're going to follow me. And you've got a guy who, he had a lot of reinforcement because he'd been winning re-elections. He'd been winning elections for a long time. He'd won, like, I don't know how many times he was governor. Yeah. He lost one. He lost one, but he, I mean, he'd won a lot of elections uh, in his life. And, you know, taking his case to the public and um, uh, retail politics. And um, so they got all this reinforcement. And then he was elected president. Now, somebody has to be elected. But he was elected, and so he said, look, I've been taking my case to the people, and I've been winning, so I can keep doing it. What's different? Elections are different than governing. Mm -hmm. They're not the same. And, and the public relations problem is, is different, because someone has to be selected president. Mm -hmm. It may take us a while, but someone ultimately has to be selected. But legislation doesn't have to be passed. Mm-hmm. So what would you recommend to um, presidential candidates uh, that they pay attention to um, as, they, as they prepare to govern, even if they lose? What kinds of things should they pay attention to in the terms of the promises they give and what, and what they should focus on as, yeah. I mean, here they've spent over a year going everywhere in the country, right, and right. they are talking directly to, right, to right, the public. Right, right. Well, if, if, you were, if what you're promising requires that you go out there and, and persuade a lot of people in the public or persuade a lot of members of Congress to change their minds, you're going to have trouble. 
you're, you're likely going to fail. And, uh, and you need to know that because you may be setting yourself up for a disaster and then you follow up and keep your word and, and try and you make a big effort and you fail. That speaks very eloquent. That mm -hmm. shows you can be beaten. And it shows that you also probably didn't assess the situation very well. Mm -hmm. And you don't get a lot of points in Washington or in the nation at large. Failure. Mm -hmm. We tend to think of, um, of, uh, of, of White House communications as, uh, as talking and of putting ideas out mm -hmm. when it would seem that uh, what your research would show, uh, that a very large part of it is listening. And that's Absolutely. something that um, the presidential right. candidates may not be so good at, and presidents themselves aren't either. Right. And that not a lot of attention has been put into how do you listen, not just getting polls, but what are the various mechanisms that you can right. use to listen. Right. I mean, you're absolutely right, and we don't have we have very little systematic on that. And I think that systematic information, evidence uh -huh. studies, and I think that that campaigns are not set up to do that either, mm -hmm. and, and White Houses are not right. really yeah. set up to do that either. Um, but I I think that also presidents uh, have to be ready, they have to be flexible, so that if they get a big vote. They can do more than if they get a small vote, probably. Mm -hmm. If they get a, if they have a, a strong support in Congress, meaning a lot of members of their party in Congress, they can do more. So you, mm -hmm. you have to adjust your agenda uh, accordingly, I think, and and that's that that's important. You have to recognize that, that context is going to drive things. Presidents talk about political capital. Our current president talks about political capital. It's a it's an important concept. Everybody talks about political mm -hmm. capital, um, but the fact is. Political capital may be important, but there's not much you can do to increase it. You're highly mm -hmm. dependent on the deal that you get dealt by the public mm -hmm. in terms of your own vote and in terms of, of the people they, 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 they put in, in Congress. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're very dependent on that. Mm -hmm. The president's talked a lot less about it. Uh, recently, he talked. He l talked about it as his second yeah. term began. Right. Of how he was going to use his right. political capital. Well, now he has very little his, political capital. Well, he, did, he didn't <laughs> seem to have a whole bank full then either. Well, that's right. He overestimated greatly yeah. the political capital he had. I'm afraid. Is there another question? One more question. Anybody? Um, you talked about how many um, how many people are getting obtaining information from various news sources. What's your view on bloggers on the internet? Well, uh, <clears throat> I don't think that that uh, bloggers are talking to each other. They're usually they're usually uh, making a case. So that's all good in terms of uh, encouraging uh, involvement in politics and encouraging thinking about politics. And there may be many great insights on the blogs. But as far as a a, a systematic you know background source of information. I, I do not I do not think highly of blogs in that regard. I think that you need to go to a, a first class newspaper, uh, and if you if if you want to watch TV and don't have hours to invest in it, uh, the uh, the News Hour on PBS is is, is is an excellent source of information. But I think there's no substitute for for first class newspapers, and if you can uh, read. Uh, a couple of uh, specialty magazines, I recommend the National Journal and uh, Congressional Quarterly. But most people are not going to read those. I, I, I understand that. Um, but they are accessible and they're, and, and, and they're very well done and very informative. 
Yeah, that's a long-winded answer about the blogs, and I apologize okay. for that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, George. My pleasure. Yeah. My pleasure. Certainly appreciate it. Thank you.